But it's uh, great to be with you um, today. This is actually the first time in 20 months I've been able to come and preach at an FIEC church in Pardeston because of the COVID crisis. I've preached at lots of churches online, but it's lovely to see people physically um, embodied and to be with you. Um, it's also great to see your new building and the way that the Lord has provided for you. Last time I was uh, with you, we were meeting at the school. And it's just great to see how the Lord has um, uh, provided. So it's a pleasure to be with you. Let's turn to um, Psalm 90, and let's pray as we come to God's Word. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you and praise you. This is a psalm that you caused to be inspired by your Spirit through your servant Moses. And thank you that you speak to us through it today. We ask and pray that you might give us ears to hear, and we remember the Lord Jesus who said the psalms were about him. So we ask and pray that you might help us to especially see how this psalm points us to your precious Son, the Lord Jesus. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, how should we live in the face of death? How should we live in the face of uh, death? I was really struck by the uh, story of a man called Daryl Meekon uh, this week. It's reported in the papers. Daryl um, is aged 55, he used to be um, a lecturer, and sadly he was given um, a terminal diagnosis. And as uh, so many people in our culture, when he was given that diagnosis, his response was to draw up a bucket list of all the things that he wanted to do before um, he died. But the reason that uh, Daryl made it into the papers was that one of his items on his bucket list was mooning at a speed camera. I don't know whether you um, saw the story, but that was on his bucket list. So um, uh, Daryl uh, mooned um, a, a mobile speed camera, and 20 minutes later, six policemen burst into his house and arrested him and wrestled him um, to the ground, and he was charged with um, a public order uh, offence. Well, that's a rather extreme version of how people might face death when they draw up their bucket lists. I'm guessing probably most of you don't have mooning a speed camera on your uh, kind of bucket lists. But maybe you do have, at least mentally, your list of things that you want to do um, before uh, you die. And that's how um, our culture thinks about death. We're to make the most of the time that we have. Because really, there's nothing um, afterwards. Perhaps we only begin to sort of put that into action when we do receive a terminal diagnosis or when we're becoming um, uh, elderly. And until then, we try to not give it a thought and just live for the moment. Well, Psalm 90 is about the question of how to live in the face of death. How do we live in the face of death? And the answer that Psalm 90 gives is quite simply this. Not by moving but by asking God for mercy. That's how we live in the face of death. I think this psalm is a psalm that can, um, on the surface, appear to be depressing, but actually ought to be a psalm that is encouraging. It appears depressing, but in fact it's encouraging. The reason it's encouraging is because of the very nature of what the psalms are themselves. The Psalms were written to foster the faith of God's people. 
The Psalms were finally collected together in the form that we have them in the Bible, and actually after the time of the exile of God's people. The Psalms were collected from all kinds of different periods in Israel's history, but they were brought together in this collection at the time of or after the exile. <coughs> but they were gathered and collected to reassure God's people in that dreadful situation that God would keep his covenant promises to them. The Psalms were written so that they could know that they could trust his love and that he would restore them. And this Psalm, Psalm 90, comes at a kind of crucial turning point in the book of Psalms. It's the first Psalm in book four of the Psalms. The Psalms are divided up into five collections. This is the first Psalm of book four. And book three ended with an explanation of why God's people had gone into exile. It ended with the uh, explanation of how they rebelled against God, they'd sinned, they'd turned to worship other gods. And as a result, Jerusalem had been captured by the Babylonians, the temple destroyed, the king removed, and the people carted off into exile. They were under God's judgment because of their sin. But chapter 4 of um, uh, kind of Psalms breaks in with hope. Because book four primarily reminds God's people that despite all that is happening in the world, God is sovereign and he is in control. And book five, which follows on, promises restoration. God's people under his judgment can still trust his promises and he will restore them. And Psalm 90 begins this journey, as it were, from wrath to mercy and restoration. So Psalm 90 is actually drawn from a much earlier period in the history of Israel. We're told it's a a psalm of Moses. We don't know exactly when Moses wrote this psalm, but most likely Moses wrote this psalm at the time when the Israelites were in the wilderness. You remember how God rescued his people from Egypt, he redeemed them, um, and they were then um, in the wilderness. They were only meant to make a short journey before they entered into the promised land. But again, the wilderness generation of Israelites rebelled against God and sinned. And the result is that God said the whole generation would die (coughs) in the wilderness. So for 40 years, the Israelites wandered aimlessly in the wilderness. They were in a kind of no man's land between the slavery in Egypt and the promised land to come. And in many ways, that situation is a parallel situation to the exile. But for God's people, their experience was just sitting around in the promised land, uh, in the um, our wilderness, knowing that they were going to die, and that they wouldn't enter uh, into the land. And that's the situation into which Moses prays this psalm. And what's happened here is Moses is interceding for his people. And in this psalm, um, uh, uh, Moses, um, in a sense, teaches them what they need and also what they should do. So I think this psalm speaks very much to our situation. Even as Christians in this world, we haven't yet arrived in our promised land. We're not yet with God in his new creation. We're still destined to die unless the Lord Jesus returns first. In a sense, we're in a wilderness. We're not in the world that we will be in. But we find ourselves in a hostile environment. 
I think Moses' prayer therefore teaches us, just as it taught the wilderness generation, just as it taught the exilic generation, how to live and pray. So as we look at this psalm, there are three things that I think we see. Firstly, we see why Moses prays. Why Moses prays. That's really verses 1 to 12 of the psalm. And, And Moses prays because the people are living under the wrath of God. As Moses makes some intercession here in this psalm, he brings the situation of the people before God. It's not that God doesn't know what their situation is. After all, God is the one who's responsible for their situation. But Moses brings the situation before God. I think he prays before the people so that they will understand their situation. But what he wants is he wants them to face up to the reality of their mortality. Because he says that that is crucial, essential, to gaining true wisdom and a right relationship with God. So he wants them to understand their situation so that they will become wise. So in verses 1 to 6 of the psalm, uh, sort of Moses contrasts God's eternity with our transience. Wants just to highlight how transient and short our lives are in comparison with God's eternal existence. So verse 2, he remembers that God is the one who created the earth. God is the one who is from everlasting to everlasting. He's the one from before the beginning. He's the one to whom the future will belong. He is the God of all eternity. But in contrast, verses 3 to 6, we have short, brief lives before we return to dust. Moses says that for God, even a thousand years are kind of like a couple of hours. It's just a watch in the night. And he describes our lives using kind of two metaphors. Our lives are like a dream. Dreams are quickly over. And our lives are like grass. Something that flourishes in the morning but withers in the evening. It's not long-lasting. No sooner is it there than it's gone. Moses says that it's this eternal God who takes our life away. Do you see that in uh, verses sort of 5 and 6? Um, uh, verse 5 is, you sweep them away with um, a flood. Verse 3, you return man to dust. It's this eternal God who makes our lives so short. And in verses 7 and 8, uh, Moses explains why our lives are so transient, why it's like this. And it's not because of some sort of biological defect in our creation. Not some biological defect that just means we kind of wear out with time. No, the reason is because of the wrath of God. Verse 7, we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath, we are dismayed. The reason our lives are short and transient is because we're under the wrath, the just anger of God against our sin. Our rebellion against him, because we've not lived for him as we ought to have done. We were created to be in relationship with him, created to love him, created to serve him, and instead we've chosen to live for ourselves. 
And the result is he is angry at our rebellion. Verse 8, you set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, to the light of our presence. There's absolutely nothing about our lives that is secret to God. Nothing is hidden from him. He knows our every action, our every thought, um, he knows our every word. All our sins are open to him. And the result is that we are under his wrath. Again, this was um, true of the wilderness generation. They were under the wrath of God because they rebelled against him. They worshipped the golden calf in his place. They refused to go up and invade the promised land when he commanded them to because they didn't believe his promise that he'd give them victory. They worshipped the Baal of Peor and engaged in sexual immorality, worshipping a pagan god, thinking he would be the one who would meet their needs. They were under the wrath of God, which is why they die in the wilderness. And the Bible says that that's true of the whole of humanity. Ever since the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God and didn't live his way, we've lived under God's wrath. And then in verses 9 to 11, Moses expresses the frustration of living under the wrath of God. He has it by the emotional, existential experience of what it means. It means that our days are short. They're marked by suffering by toil and trouble. They end with a sigh, or literally, um, a groan. What Moses does here is he, he ex- describes the human condition. He describes the frustration that we feel, because this is not what we were created for. We were created for eternity with God. But tragically, this has been the human experience ever since the Garden of as it was the experience of these Israelites in the wilderness. So here is Moses. Why does he pray? Because the people are under the wrath of God. Maybe you think that that's depressing to contemplate. Maybe you came to church this morning and think, I really want to have something that's going to lift me up. This is just depressing to be reminded of all this. Why did Moses write like this? <coughs> Well, the answer is so that he, uh, the people could gain wisdom. It's actually not clear where the paragraph should break in this um, psalm between um, verses 11 and verse 13. It's not quite clear where it um, should go. I probably think verse 12 belongs with the uh, paragraph before. And having explained why he's praying because the people are under, under wrath, um, Moses' kind of application or reason is there in verses 11 and 12. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. See, Moses says you've got to face up to reality in order to become truly unwise. We need to be uh, uh, those who number our days, who are conscious of our mortality. Humanly speaking, 70 years might seem like quite a long time, but they rush by. We need to face up to our frailty. But verse 11 seems to be saying that what we actually need is a fear of God 
that's as great as his wrath. Our experience of the wrath of God ought to lead us to fear God. And actually in the Bible, fear of God is not terror of God. Fear of God is recognising that God is the sovereign king you should serve. Fear of God basically means reverencing him and recognising him for who he is. The fact that we're under the wrath of God ought to cause us to turn to reverence God. And the two are linked because as the book of Proverbs says, it's the fear of God that is the beginning of wisdom. It's as we recognise who God is, how great he is, and how small we are in comparison that we begin to learn wisdom. We need to face mortality so that we will know what to do and how to live. So that might seem at first glance depressing, even painful. As we read verses 1 to 12 of this song, do you resonate with what Moses describes? Do you feel the anguish of this shortness of life? Frustrated by the sufferings of life? The futility that much of our work will not last? Well, have you realised that the reason for that is because you're under the wrath of God? That might be painful, but actually verses 1 to 12 is the diagnosis that Moses is presenting so that um, there can be um, a, a, a reaching out for the cure. In some ways, verses 1 to 12 of this are actually run like a, a CT scan that reveals the disease so that we can seek the treatment. Moses' purpose here is not to depress us, but to bring reality home, so that we turn to the hope that he expresses in verses 13 to 17. So we won't accept the treatment unless we first recognise our terminal condition. And if we're Christians, actually one of the challenges we have in our world is to persuade the world around us of this diagnosis. People are, of course, aware of that, but they see it just as something natural. They don't realise that it's the result of God's wrath against sin. They don't, therefore, realise that there is a treatment, and there is a cure. Unless they understand that, they won't turn to Christ. So for those of us who are Christians, part of our job is to help people to face that reality and recognise that they are under the wrath of God so that we can hold out to them the wonderful hope. So why does Moses pray? He prays because the people are living under the wrath of God. Well secondly, what does Moses pray? What does Moses pray? Well that's really verses 13 to 17. And what Moses prays is that God would have mercy. That God would have mercy. See, this on prayer is the intercession of Moses, Moses for the people. And what he asks uh, on, on um, behalf of the people from God is that he would have mercy. Look at that verse 13. Return, O Lord, how long? Well, that word return carries probably more the sense of relent. Turn away from your anger and your wrong. The second half of verse 13, have pity on your servant. Show them compassion. Verse 17 sums it up. 
let the favour of the Lord our God be upon us. And that word favour is the word that means kind of mercy or grace. See, extraordinarily, um, verses 1 to 12 of the Psalms said that God is the people's problem. God's their problem because um, uh, they're under his wrath. But at the same time, God is uh, alone their hope. What Moses prays for in verses um, 13 to 17 is he prays for the removal of wrath, that God would relent. He prays for the restoration of joy. Verse 15, make us glad for as many days as you um, are afflicted. He prays that um, there'll be a revelation of God's saving power. Verse 16, let your work be shown to your servants, your glorious power to their children. He prays for there to be a renewal of purpose in life. Verse 17, establish the work of our hands. He prays that they'll be satisfied, verse 14, with God's steadfast covenant love. And Moses prays this prayer, he intercedes for the people, asking for God's mercy with confidence. Because he knows the character of God. He prays on the basis of who God is. Notice um, verse 13, he um, uh, calls him Lord. In our Bibles, Lord in capital uh, <coughs> letters. That's the covenant name of God. The name that God specially revealed to his people. The name that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. He comes to God by name. And that name reminds God that he's committed to this people. They're the ones that he's chosen. Moses is appealing on the basis of God's covenant with his people. That's why in verse 13 he cries, have pity on your servants. It reminds God who they are. They've been chosen by God to serve him. Verse 14, he, he reminds God what he's like. He appeals on the basis of his steadfast love carries the idea of his unbreakable covenant commitment. What Moses is doing here is he's asking God to keep his promises to his people. To fulfil his covenant with them. But of course this isn't the first time that Moses has prayed like this. Moses interceded on behalf of the people after the golden calf. You can read about it in Exodus chapter 32 to 34. When God said he was going to destroy the people and start again, Moses appealed to God's covenant promises and God's covenant character, and God answered his prayers. Again, that's what Moses is doing here. He's coming and he's asking for God to show mercy on the basis of his covenant character, his covenant promises, his covenant Actually, I think that's really important for us as we come to prayer for a whole variety of things in our lives. We don't come to God praying because of who we are. We come to God praying because of who He is and what He has promised. Prayer isn't coming to God telling Him what He should do. Prayer isn't coming to God saying, God, I've got a better plan than yours. Prayer isn't coming to God and saying, God, um, here are a few things you've probably not noticed. Here's my idea as to what you should do with them. 
Prayer isn't coming to God and saying, I'm really important, please listen to me. Prayer is coming to God and asking him to fulfill his promises to his people, to keep his covenant, to be who he has revealed himself to be. When we realise that, that gives us a much more confident basis for coming and praying up to God. So here is Moses interceding. What does he pray for? Praise for God to have mercy. Of course, that is what the people need, and that is what we need. Because God is the problem, there is no hope to be found anywhere else. These people face death under the wrath of God, a bucket list in the wilderness is not going to help them, or save them, or satisfy them in the face of death. The work of our hands cannot be established without the faith of God. In many ways, this psalm reads rather like the book of Ecclesiastes. It speaks of how death makes everything ultimately meaningless. When we die, we lose our status. We can't take our stuff. Most of us are quickly forgotten and leave looking traits. What we need is the mercy of God. Well, finally and thirdly, I think we see how Moses' prayer was answered. How Moses' prayer was answered. And the answer is God sent Jesus. There's a sense in which actually Psalm 90 here is unfinished. We see Moses setting out the problem to God, the people under his wrath. We see him crying for mercy. But it begs the question, doesn't it, what on earth happened next? What happened next? Well, in many ways, as I've said, in books 4 and books 5 of the psalm, what happens next is the promise of restoration for God's people. God is going to take his wrath away. God is going to restore his people. They will return to the promised land. They will worship God um, once um, again. But even at the end of the book of Psalms, um, the, the story is in a sense still unfinished. It hasn't yet happened. <clears throat> and at one level, it's never fulfilled in the Old Testament. But the great news for us is that this prayer of Moses has now been answered. God has relented and has turned his wrath away. He has had compassion on his people. He has shown us his favour. And the way that he did that is by sending his son, the Lord Jesus, into the world. Although he lived a life that was perfectly sinless, unlike any of ours, he willingly went to the cross and died for our sins. God poured out his wrath on him to make full satisfaction for our sins, so that we could be satisfied by God's steadfast love. You see, the great news for us, if we're Christians, is that we're no longer in the situation described in verses 1 to 12 of this psalm, because God has answered this prayer in Jesus. We are no longer under the wrath of God. We still unface death. There's still our suffering and frustration as we wait for the coming of the new creation. But even now, verse 14, we can be glad and rejoice. We're no longer under any condemnation. 
we've been given the gift of eternal life. Our sins have been forgiven. We've seen the, uh, the work of God and his glorious power in the cross and resurrection. And the result is that the work of our hands is established as we work for the Lord. Paul, in his uh, glorious chapter on the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, ends by saying, Our labour in the Lord is not in vain. The resurrection makes everything that we do in service of the Lord Jesus worthwhile and lasting. It's not in vain. It's not futile. Romans 8 gives us the great hope that even though this world as a whole continues to be subjected to futility and frustration because of sin, one day it will be set free. And that freedom has broken in for us as we trusted in Jesus. This prayer of Moses, this crying for mercy, has been answered in the provision of the Lord Jesus. And that should make us rejoice that we have forgiveness in him. But we don't have to face death in the way that these Israelites had to face death in the wilderness, but we do so with confident hope. And the Lord Jesus is not only the answer to Moses' prayer, but I think this psalm reminds us that he is also the one who is now interceding for us. Here in this prayer, Moses, the man of God, was interceding for the people. But Jesus is the one who's greater than Moses. He's not just the man of God, he's the son of God. <coughs> and at the right hand of the Father, he is our advocate. Jesus pleads for mercy for his people. He pleads of what he has done on the cross. As Satan makes his accusations against us, Jesus pleads what he has to make intercession for his people. I love the uh, hymn before the throne of God I have a perfect plea. Which just reminds us that Jesus is the one who is there speaking on our behalf ever living and pleading for us his perfect uh, sacrifice. Jesus uh, is interceding for us. And in that sense, I think he's also an example to us. Because we are called, I think, to intercede for others. This psalm provides a pattern of prayer that we can follow. You see, we are those who've received mercy. But we live in a world of people who are still unwilling. People who were created by God. Surely we're to follow in the pattern of Moses and being those who intercede and ask that God might have mercy on those who are still under wrath. Isn't this what Paul did in Romans 9 to 11 when he prayed for his people, the Israelites, that God might have mercy upon them and they might enter into the salvation he had received? We're to pray for our family, our friends, our community, our country, our world. God might show his covenant mercy. People might be rescued but are saved from the <clears throat> So how should we live in
in the face of death. I hope you can see that Psalm 90 is really helpful to us as we think of that question. And the answer is, not by a bucket list, not by moving, but by asking God for the mercy we need. And trusting God for the mercy that he's provided in Jesus. That takes us back to um, verse 1 of Psalm 90. Moses begins, Lord, you have been our dwelling place for all generations. That's uh, what it means to be one of God's people. To be one of God's people is to make God your dwelling place. And the idea of a dwelling place, the language of a dwelling place here, is actually the idea of a refuge. The idea of a, a place of um, safety. Actually, this very idea is picked up at the beginning of Psalm 91. Just um, flip down to Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. See, Psalm 91 verses 1 and 2 make clear what it means to make God your dwelling place. It means to trust in God as your fortress, refuge, shelter. The place of where you are safe. How do we live in the face of death? By receiving the mercy that is available to us in all Jesus. By making him our dwelling place. A place of refuge. A place of safety. And this psalm reminds us there is no hope in the face of death without God and the Lord Jesus. God is our problem. His wrath against our sin. But if we make him our dwelling place of refuge, we're safe. He shelters us. But the way that we do that is simply by putting our trust in Jesus. Recognising him as the Lord who rules over our lives and trusting his promise that he has taken away our sins and given us the gift of eternal life. Have you done that? Is God your dwelling place today? Well, if he is, you are safe. And you can live without fear of death, without fear of futility, because you've received his mercy. And if you are a Christian who has made God your dwelling place, then the psalm calls you to live wisely. And number your days aright. But what that means for us, I think, as Christians, <laughs> that we are to be those who make the most of the life that we have, serving God now, but with a sure and certain hope of eternity ahead. It means that we can be confident that all of our service for the Lord, every way that we serve Him, in every area of our lives, is not futile and in vain. Because He establishes the work of our hands. It means we're free not to have to experience everything now. Because we're going to have an eternity to enjoy the new creation that he will bring about. Make God your dwelling place. Receive his mercy. 
Number your days right wisely. In the light of the shortness of Heavenly Father, we do want to thank you and praise you for this psalm that you caused it to be in your word. And even though it deals with a very sobering subject, we want to thank you for the hope that it brings. We recognise that by nature we are under your wrath because of our sin and rebellion against you. But we want to thank you and praise you that you are the God of mercy and grace. Thank you that you gave your precious son, the Lord Jesus to be the one who died to take the wrath we deserve. Thank you that in him you have had compassion on us. Thank you that in him you kept your covenant promises to your people to remove their sins. Thank you that in him we can know renewed joy and the satisfaction of your love. So we give you praise and thanks for how you've answered this prayer in the Lord Jesus. Thank you that you are our dwelling place. And thank you that in you we are utterly safe and secure. We ask and pray that you might make us wise, give us wisdom to number our days aright, that we might use the time that you give us, give us um, in your service, knowing that you establish the work in our hands. Father, we pray for a lost world, for those around us who are still under your wrath, we cry out for them. Lord, please have mercy upon them. Please help us to be able to share with them the good news of the Lord Jesus, that they too might make him their dwelling place. And we ask this for his name.